You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Ayla Ellison. This week, you'll hear from two journalists from the Fierce Healthcare team, Paige Minemeyer, Senior Editor of Fierce Health Payer, and Dave Moyo, a staff writer for Fierce Healthcare. They'll take you through their key insights from the inaugural Fierce Health Payer Summit in Austin, which took place earlier this month. In addition, they'll dive into the latest earnings updates from the largest health plans and health systems. They explore the highs and lows of the most recent quarterly earnings reports and share their predictions for the months ahead. Here they are. Dave, great to be back for our kind of regularly scheduled check-in about the the financial performance of the industry. How have you been? I've been doing well, Paige. We are coming very, very hot off of the Fierce Health Payer Summit, yes. uh, which you had a big role in. Do you think it went well? Yeah, I was I was really proud of the team. I think an event launch is hard, right? <laughs> Especially <laughs> an editorially led product like this. It was one of the few that we have kind of in the in the pot working on it. So I think I was really pleased that the the agenda filled out and I was hearing really great feedback from from folks on the ground. I had somebody stop me and, and mention that they were making good contacts while they were there and that it felt like everything was really lively. The other thing I, I noticed, and in, in, you may have noticed this as well, is just it felt like in all the sessions that the audience was pretty locked in. We were getting questions and, and Q&A answers kind of for for most of the segments, which is a rarity, I've done a lot of, of panels and moderating both for fierce and without, and sometimes getting the audience to engage with what you're talking about is a little bit like pulling teeth. Even as we were closing out the event in the the closing keynote that that Heather, our colleague, moderated with with Dr. Farzad Masashari, there were still a bunch of questions in the audience, and people weren't just rushing out to the airport. So it was all pretty good to see. And you, you moderated a panel as well, and the, the regulatory kind of topics to watch. How do, you, how do you feel like that went? I had a good time on the stage, frankly. The two panelists I got, Dr. Don Rucker, who's at 1UP Health now, but very well known as former head of ONC, and Catherine Hempstead, who is a senior policy advisor at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Both of them are just super knowledgeable. We were having talks before. They were saying, oh, we could talk about this in our sleep in it engaging yeah. <laughs> way and knowledgeable way, obviously. But I don't know, they were very able to get into just about anything and talk about it in a way that I would think that a very payer-heavy audience would definitely appreciate. And I'll just echo what you said. I walked around the little expo hall and was getting stopped by people who were saying, wow, like you got for a first year show, you guys got some names here and yeah. we're very excited here to try and make some connections. One thing I, I liked about your panel that I thought was pretty cool is that they were, they're speaking to an audience of health plans and the executives at health plans in, in large part, but they didn't shy away from taking them to task when necessary. They were honest. They talked about the Medicare Advantage program in pretty frank terms and about some of the consolidation in the industry pretty clearly and directly. So I thought that was a nice mix kind of in the in the program, given that we had a lot of executives and, and, and folks in the industry. So I think it was nice to have a little bit of a point-counterpoint moment there. So I'm really, really proud of, of the work that we did. So glad you were hearing positive stuff out in the, the show floor as well. If you missed it this year and you want to come to the, the 2024 Fierce Health Payer Summit, 
we'll welcome you with open arms. Pretty easy to find us if you're interested in speaking opportunities or just attending and, and meeting the team, meeting the the experts there. So a bunch of earnings calls fell at the same time as the summit. So I was like pulled a little bit of multiple different directions. So these two things are <laughs> at the forefront <laughs> of my mind right now. From your perspective, I mean, what are you hearing from the the providers about what trends they're watching? And maybe how have you seen that evolve over the course of the year? Because now we're in Q4. We just got done with Q3 calls. Sure. And I'll say my usual disclaimer at the bat, the for-profits we get to hear from first and the nonprofits honestly just started trickling out a little bit. So I won't get too much into them, but I will say the early indications are the nonprofit trends are not too far off from the for-profits. But I think the big takeaways generally, and this is continuation of the year, it's volume recovery, people coming back for care. Also, just since this was Q3, we got the end of the summer and elective procedures normally have some seasonal trends there, but just with all the pandemic deferred care, pretty much across the board, everyone's reporting that their volumes are up generally a little bit lower acuity, but so accompanying that more volumes are coming in, more revenues coming in, but also translate to expenses. You got to spend money to care for more patients. And it's always the talks about labor and inflation are the two and they continue to be a thing, although generally a lot of the capacity-related concerns about labor are starting to taper off and contracts, I want to say the contracts pretty much across the board, contract nursing, contract labor is getting back into a more reasonable position for a lot of these large organizations. And we did see some interesting trends in terms of a physician expense during the quarter, though. I will say that. When we were chatting about some of the the trends ahead of this, you said that there were health systems that were characterizing it as feeling like they were, were blindsided by some of these fees. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it's, they've all got ERs or whatever they need to staff physicians. They make those deals. And part of what was unique for this year and seemed to particularly come to a head in this quarter is the No Surprises Act. We've seen some pretty high-profile bankruptcies among physician staffing firms, vision, what have you, and it seems like it's it's coming downstream. I would say HCA Healthcare, Universal Health Services, and Community Health Systems all seem to be caught off guard. UHS's CFO was saying uh, it was collective learning that so much of these businesses were focused on billing to out-of-network patients and... I know at over there, at U, their physician expense pre-pandemic was about 6% of the revenue, and now it's at about 7.6%. Again, similar stories on some of the other organizations. They're addressing this by either renegotiating their contracts or trying to bring more of that work in-house when they can and paying people more. <laughs> Sometimes right. they just got to pay these third parties more. They These ERs got to be staffed at the end of the day, which (laughs) is actually, it's an interesting dynamic. HCA, they had upped their stake in a joint venture, Velasco Physician Services, that they had had with Envision, which, as I mentioned before, went bankrupt. And so a lot of this is they're bringing it inside their organization, and they seem to have been the absolute most blindsided. They had a quote where they were operating on some incomplete historical data about what they were getting ready to expect. 
they say they have a plan to adjust the contracts and they can now see into the revenue cycle and the trends much more so they can try to get more money flowing in. Again, they stood by that decision to increase their investment in or their stake in the joint venture because they need those physicians. You alluded to this a little bit at the outset. I feel like when we've sat down to have these conversations, we have inevitably started talking about labor issues and inflation and how providers are navigating those. But I feel like there are signs in some of the stories that you've been covering and analyses we've seen out there that these pressures are starting to to ease a bit. Is that a trend that you're feeling as well? Yes and no. The the contract labor is where it manifests the most, but generally there's a lot of just nurse recruitment, retention, hiring. They're not doing a lot of contract hiring to fill gaps very suddenly and expensively, but it's it's still absolutely elevated and they expect it to maybe remain elevated even going into next year. Like There's going to be steady increases and those increases are still more than they'd like. Inflation's a very similar story, just in terms that I think sometimes that manifests in the supply and even drug costs as well. For nonprofits, it tends to also manifest in their ability to get some debt financing. It's it's definitely something everyone's keeping an eye on. I will say that the utilization trends are now turning around the other way. We've got this recovery. Mm -hmm. Some of these hospitals and health systems expect the elective service huge bounce back to ease a bit going into the winter, obviously. And a lot of it is appearing in the outpatient setting and general sets requiring a shift. They're noting that with the volumes coming back, utilization is up and it's changing their relationship with payers. There's a lot of, I'm not going to call it charity because that's, it's not, but (laughs) there's a lot of easing of pressure from the payer side in terms of like how hard they are fighting for some of these contracts or how often they're denying services and the executives at these health systems seem to be implying oh the 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 vacation's over they're back to seeing oh god look at all this utilization we need to be clamping down harder i think you you'll probably speak to this a bit when we go to uh, your side of the fence but the executives at health systems seem to think that they will be able to secure higher managed care rates or get a lot of those disputed services paid it's just it's going to take a bit of time do you know? Do the paperwork. Go contest things. Try to make those arguments. Utilization trends are a big one for payers right now too, and we can talk about that in a minute. But before we make that shift, I want to ask you. You did give your disclaimer as you typically do about the fact that we don't have a ton right now on the the not for profits. Obviously, they are on their own schedules a little bit. Are there trends there that you're watching, and and do we have any kind of data there that that is worth worth talking about? Of the big ones, Kaiser Permanente likes to come out and give their very top line results mm-hmm. in the press release, and then like a month later, come back with their filing. And then I know Sutter just put out their earnings. Uh, it seems like it's a kind of a continuation of what we saw earlier in the year, in line with the for-profits. They have an operating gain, which was not what they could say during chunk, good chunks of the pandemic, Sutter especially. And I think the... All their bottom line numbers are going to be much, much stronger in general, but that's just because a lot of them got really hammered last year with their investment portfolios, which would really drag them down. Paige, I'd like to hear about some what's going on in payer land. Yeah. To start, I, I'll rattle off some numbers because I feel like these are pretty indicative of the story, but to 
to sum it up, kind of the, the short version is overall, I mean, the trends that we're watching are the same that we've been talking about the past couple of times we've done this. These big payers are very profitable and they're really only continuing to grow. They're running into snags here and there and the story is a little different for each one of them. But overall, there's none of them that are sandbagging. <laughs> to paint a picture of what this looks like through the first three quarters of the year, profits posted were... And I'll go in reverse order. I'll start at the bottom. <laughs> Seventeen reported $2.7 billion in profit. Humana reported $3 billion. Cigna Group reported $4.1 billion. Elevance Health reported $5.1 billion. CVS Health was $6.3 billion in profit. And then Health Group reported $16.9 billion in profit. That's the, the clear divide there where they all clustered together and then you just have United Health Group blowing everyone out of the water. That's just a trend that's been ongoing for the past several quarters. And we've talked about this before, but part of that is just due to the fact that UHG is really ahead of the industry on a lot of things, especially around the vertical consolidation. That's the kind of the hot thing right now. Optum and particularly Optum Health, it's provider armor, it's its growth engine. And they are a lot farther down the line of of building out Optum compared to where a lot of these other competitors are in kind of building out their non-health plan <laughs> businesses that they're all working on. So every, overall, everyone's making a lot of money, but United Health Group is making a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> we were talking about it a little before you teased that you wanted to chat about it too. Utilization rebounds. What were they saying? What are, What's going on with those medical loss ratios? This is a trend that they started flagging in Q2, but warned that it would be something to watch going into the end of the year. United Health especially was the first to start sounding the alarm bells a little bit on this, that they were seeing elective procedures start to come back in, in fairly significant numbers to the point where it was having impacts on their MLR, which for the, for people who aren't really sure how it works, that's basically how much of their premium revenue they're paying out in services and to cover healthcare costs. So Obviously, the more <laughs> services you're covering, the higher your MLR is. Executives at United didn't want to make clear that this wasn't really an abnormal thing that they were seeing. It was really a return to some of these services that had been postponed under the pandemic. CEO Andrew Whitty emphasized that they were seeing orthopedic surgeries, outpatient procedures and things like that, which were all things that had been really cut back during COVID. And especially they were seeing these trends among seniors who were in large part delaying these services just because of the risks. So United Health kicked that conversation off and then Humana echoed them and, and a lot of the others in the market have also echoed it. But to to be fair, they're not really looking at this as a, a headwind that's going to be a massive drag on their finances. It's more just something to think about as, as how they're going to manage these these returns to, to, to normalcy. The one thing that's worth thinking about, and I don't really have an answer on this, but it is you know interesting to, to watch how these trends could impact smaller health plans because if you're a company the size of the ones we're talking about, they can absorb these costs pretty easily. They are diversified. They have a lot of segments. But if you're a smaller, more regional health plan and all of a sudden your utilization spikes it may be a little harder to offset those costs. Medicare Advantage star ratings. I know that, I mean, they came up an awful lot at the payer summit as well. They did. But I heard that they've come up for the investors. Can you tell me a bit about how those were affecting health plans, or at least how they said they were affecting health plans? Yeah. So CMS updated the methodology for how they're calculating star ratings. 
and the star ratings are used to then determine payments to MA plans. So if you really flop in the star ratings, you're you're pretty screwed. <laughs> and they and they 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 compound for several years worth of of how they calculate them. So it's not just based year to year. Each year's star ratings are calculated on, I believe it's three years worth of data. So this these changes can have significantly long tails if you're not really able to course correct or adjust to the changes. So pretty much across the board, we've seen clear winners and losers in the changes. And investors were pretty pretty much hammering this topic on Q&A and across all the calls. So Humana and Aetna, for instance, were really touting how their star ratings performed and the fact that they didn't see huge drops. But you see then like on the flip side, you have Ascentine or Elevance who saw hits to to some of their key MA plans that, that could have significant repercussions. Elevance, for instance, expects that it's going to take a hit of about $50 million to its Medicare bonus payments just from this year's worth of star ratings and the declines there. So there's a lot to consider when you're thinking about how to respond to that and what you can do. And they're already working on it, but I think a lot of plans are a little frustrated that these changes were rolled out and they have such broad impacts, but they really weren't given a chance to adjust significantly. And on this, in the same kind of vein, CMS also this year finalized a pretty long awaited <laughs> update to risk adjustment audits and Medicare Advantage and the, the opposite of, of the star ratings. This will have an impact on business, obviously, but plans have had a long time to be thinking about this. And this came up at the payer summit as well. An executive at Clover Health who was on a panel with us basically said, you're, you're, you're stupid if you haven't been planning ahead for this to be coming down the pike. So they've had a lot of time to be thinking about what they can do to adapt to these RADV changes, which they didn't really have the same level of um, ability to pre- prepare for the star ratings adjustments. So that's a major concern for a lot of insurers. And I think we're seeing this week maybe evidence of some of the changing calculus around MA and, and how you approach it from a business perspective. It was Reuters was reporting that Cigna is thinking about selling its MA business and kind of getting out of that space, which is a, a pivot for them given that the past several years they focused on huge double-digit growth targets for, for geographic reach and, and membership in MA. So when you think about the impacts that these regulatory changes have had and how the program is evolving, you may see more of these smaller players almost rethinking their position in the market. This is reported, so we haven't necessarily seen that Cigna is taking action to dump off its MA plans, but they hadn't quite built themselves up to like be a huge, huge player in MA. So the fact that they're maybe reconsidering that it's not worth it, I think is something to watch. But speaking about other things that payers should have planned ahead for. <laughs> Medicaid redeterminations. Uh, plenty of warning, those are going to happen eventually. So those are still ongoing. And I could tell you from the health system perspective, it's very much a concern that takes the form of how much uncompensated care or charity care the hospitals sure. provide. But I'd like to hear about it from the payer side. What's the general feeling from the plans, how that process is moving? Are they seeing the re-enrollment rates they would like to be seeing? No, is the answer. But I mean, I think the thing is, in this case, there's not as much that the health plans can do to prepare. They're still seeing a lot of of kinks in the process, and it's still a challenge. Procedural disenrollments are still a major problem to the point where CMS has been forced to crack down in several states on, even to the point where they were telling state regulators that they had to 
put a pause on all enrollment decisions while they ironed out these issues with the with the procedural decisions. The other thing that's interesting is that we haven't really seen yet a potentially prized shift of large numbers of members from Medicaid to the exchanges that was potentially um, a business opportunity that that some plans are seeing. It, you haven't really seen the numbers there yet in terms of the shift, but we are right now in the middle of open enrollment on the exchanges. So it could bear out that by the end of this process, we, we see more people shifting from Medicaid to, to ACA plans. So something that it seems like everybody in every industry wants to weigh in on from junk food to what have you, <laughs> GLP ones. Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about it. I know from health systems, like they were getting some investor questions being, are you concerned that weight loss drugs will have an impact on your surgical, bariatric surgical volumes or other related care? Hospital execs said no, they're not worried yet. But I think this maybe has a bit more of an immediate response for the payer side of the fence. How's that going? Yeah, I think given the fact that the three dominant PBMs are integrated with these companies, it's not really that shocking that investors were asking questions about these drugs and how they're responding. Just for for background, Aetna and CVS Caremark are integrated with one another. They're with one another under CVS Health. United Health Group owns OptumRx and then Cigna owns Express Script. So all three of those companies are part of major big health plans. These these three PBMs control about eighty percent of the market in terms of covered lives. So they have a really major role in how the industry responds to to the demand around these drugs. So healthcare CEO Brian Thompson characterized the response in the market as a, a mixed bag. So they were seeing some plan sponsors, employers and, and others who were interested in or pursuing enhanced coverage to really meet demand for, for these drugs, while others are doing the opposite and really backing off because they're expensive. Andrew Whitty, who we mentioned earlier, said they're they're looking at different ways to mitigate the costs, but they haven't really found a magic bullet <laughs> around this. He also noted that these co- these drugs cost significantly more in the United States than they do elsewhere. I believe the number he said was that they cost about 10 times what they cost in Europe <laughs> for for US customers. So that is obviously a huge cost that they're that they're concerned about. And at CVS and Cigna, they're seeing similar things where they're they're seeing the demand and they're trying to find ways to accommodate that members want these products and that plant sponsors are interested in meeting these people where they are and trying to provide what they want. But they also have to be cognizant of how much this is going to cost. And while we've seen a lot around recreational use of GLP ones, I think it was interesting that Brian Thompson, who I mentioned earlier, noted that 80% of use of these drugs is in um patients with diabetes still. So we're even though we're talking a lot about more of it in a, in a weight loss context, for now, it's still largely concentrated in the diabetes space. Paige, any other major takeaways from earnings season? I would just echo again what I said at the outset, which is that these are big companies. They're, they're really only getting bigger. And who knows what it will take to slay Goliath, if you will. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercehealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.